primary text is Isaiah 52, 13 to 53:12. Now this is a very well-known text. I'm sure it'll be familiar to any of you that have grown up in the church. And yet it speaks of what is really and truly the most glorious thing in all of human history. And so it's a, it's a delight to be able to proclaim this text this morning. I can only hope that I do it some small measure of justice. Uh, so pray for me as I preach that I would be able to make this text clear to all of us. What the text proclaims most centrally is that Jesus Christ truly is the substitute for our sin. And so we're going to see that in some other texts as well. This is clearly testified to throughout the Bible. So after Anna comes and reads to us from Isaiah 52 and 53, Sharon will come and read for us John 1, 9 to 11. And then Dawn, Matthew 8, 16 and 17, and then finally Moira, uh, just the beautiful verse of 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that summarizes the gospel in one short verse. And so let me go ahead and invite Anna to come up now to begin our scripture reading. So, uh, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. <coughs> he shall be high and lifted up and shall be accepted. As many were astonished to hear, his appearance was so marked beyond, beyond human sins, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, that is. That which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young thing, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with him. And as one from whom men astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to 
death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. John 1, 9 through 11. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, ever since Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet Isaiah, and perhaps his disciples as well, have been in the mode of bringing comfort to God's people. The very first verse of Isaiah chapter 40 says, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. The reason why comfort is needed for God's people is very plain. Isaiah spent the first 39 chapters of his book rebuking Israel for their many sins and saying that judgment was going to come upon them. Chapter 39 in Isaiah ended with a remarkable and totally undeserved deliverance for the city of Jerusalem. But that would be the last time that God would save them as they continued to reject God and go their own way in their sins. And so by the time Isaiah 40 is published, where Isaiah speaks comfort, Jerusalem has indeed fallen. The people of God are not in their land anymore. The people of Jerusalem were taken away as slaves to Babylon. They have no homes. They are effectively prisoners in a foreign land, and their homes and their livelihoods are destroyed. And this is why in Isaiah chapter 40, and in all of these chapters following Isaiah 40, Isaiah is bringing comfort to God's people because they have been destroyed by their sin and by the consequences of their sin. And they have little reason for hope. Now at the same time, the whole book of Isaiah has conditioned the people of Israel to expect great salvation from God. Isaiah has emphasized over and over again in dozens of different ways just how great, just how powerful God is. Isaiah has made clear that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is greater than any other God. He's greater than any other nation or world power. He is greater than any sort of natural disaster or effective climate or system of thought in the world. That God is greater than anything and everything. The message of Isaiah can well be summed up by Romans 8.31, that if God is for you, who can be against you? And so the people of Israel were not supposed to be discouraged. They were not supposed to be afraid because of who God is, because of how strong and how mighty he is. So these people who were exiles in Babylon should easily believe that God can save, that he has the power to save, And yet their only question was, will he? Does he actually want to? After all, their their sins that had led to the invasion of their land in the first place were still with them. 
Their sins had not magically gone away. They had not become some kind of perfect people, even though they were striving after that kind of perfection. Why should the God who judged them in their sin now deliver them from the consequences of their sin? Indeed, it seemed like they were truly without hope. And in this way, we must see that we today, all of mankind, are no different than the Israelites of old. We are all mired in sin, and we are all, to one degree or another, suffering and dealing with the consequences of our sin. We live in the midst of a world that is dominated by sin. We need rescue. We all need help. If we are honest with ourselves, we will admit that our souls right now are not as they should be, and we are looking for true life, true meaning. We need rescue. And yet, we have no right to expect God to help us. After all, our sins are our choice. We go there willfully and repeatedly. Why should God save us? Yes, we may believe that God can help us. We might believe God has the power to save us. But someone being able to help us and someone being willing to help us are two very different things. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like if Warren Buffett were my friend and he were able to help me in all of my financial difficulties that I sometimes find myself in. And of course, it may be very fun to daydream about that, and I am quite confident that Warren Buffett could take care of my financial needs. But this is also an entirely useless way to think because Warren Buffett is not coming to my aid. He is not going to help me. He may be able, but he is not willing. And yet sometimes I worry that even though we sinners are in this desperate condition, even though we should recognize how without hope we are, how without comfort we are, sometimes I don't think we recognize just how desperate of a situation we are in. We are like Gollum in Lord of the Rings who is happy so long as he has this precious ring even though his body and his very life are wasting away from him. We think, oh, if only I have my sin, I'll be okay. And in the meantime, we don't realize that judgment is coming upon us. We don't realize how desperate we are, how sad we should be. Beloved, do you understand that if you are dead in your sins and God does not come to your aid, then the best life you will ever experience is the life that you have right now. And the only logical course of action in your present situation apart from God is let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That is all the hope that we can have in this earth if God does not come to our aid. Beloved, if we want to be prepared to receive the goodness of God, then we must first recognize our situation apart from him, how desperate it is and how bad it is. We are all like sin addicts. We are stuck in a practice that is so ugly and disgusting that it will eventually lead to our death and destruction. And I'm not just talking about some of us. Like there are some here who are not so bad sinners and others here who are very bad sinners. No, I am talking about all of us. The sin that each of us perform is ugly and wretched and disgusting in God's sight. 
we reek of sin before God. And we are therefore destined for the eternal fire, apart from any other kind of intervention. And it's when we understand how bad our situation is when God is against us, that we can only begin to understand how joyous we should be when God is for us. And so let me take just a moment to detail for us just how disgusting sin is in the sight of God, just how desperate our situation is so that our hearts can have this fresh appreciation for what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, it would help as I outline this if we first understand what we're talking about when we're talking about sin. What is sin? Well, the essence of sin can be summarized as this, not valuing things rightly. Not valuing things rightly. That is what sin is. Now let me flesh this out for us. Let me first give an everyday example and then I'll make clear how this relates to God. Let's say you wake up one morning after a good night's sleep and someone brings you breakfast in bed. Just as you wake up, they walk in with this tray of a beautiful breakfast and it has fruit and good coffee and eggs and pastry and bacon and juice, everything you could possibly want for breakfast. And they do this simply out of the kindness of their hearts, right? You're not paying them to do this. They don't owe you to do this. They just thought, I really want to bless this person and so I'm going to make this great breakfast and I'm going to bring it to them while they are still in bed. But suppose that after receiving this breakfast, your first words to the person are not thank you, but you look at the breakfast and you look at the coffee and you say, there's not enough cream in this coffee. And so instead of recognizing the goodness, the kindness of this great breakfast that's been made for you, all you think about is how this coffee that's been brought doesn't have enough cream. It's not as light as you would like it. Now, doesn't that sound like the most piggish, most ungrateful thing you could possibly say? Here's someone that woke up early to make you breakfast, to bring it to you, and they've done a a beautiful job, and instead of any gratitude being in your heart, you just notice that there's not enough cream in your coffee. And so the person who does this has not learned how to value things rightly. They don't value the overall breakfast that they got. They don't value the the work and the kindness of the person who brought it to them. They don't value the totally excessive nature of what has just been done. No, they only value one small, stupid thing, whether there is enough cream in their coffee. This person's heart is twisted. It is wrong. It is messed up. Now, beloved, that's just one small, everyday kind of example where I think that we can all understand the significance and the ugliness of not valuing things rightly. None of us would approve of that person who can't say thank you for this nice act of kindness that was done. But now, let's take this principle and blow it up to a scale times a million. Beloved, there is one being in the universe who ought to be valued and loved over every last little thing. God is the one who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He did not have to give you life or existence, and yet he did. God is the very definition of life and truth and love and beauty itself. 
Just listen to these words from Psalm 19, verses 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honeycomb and the drippings of the honeycomb. This is how valuable how worthy God is, that he is the one who can make our hearts to rejoice, who can enlighten our eyes, who can give us wisdom, who can revive our souls. This is the true worth and value of God. It is utterly impossible that there be anything on earth or in heaven that is greater than God. Indeed, it's impossible that there even be anything that rival God for being able to give pleasure or joy or peace or meaning. For everything on earth that gives us any kind of joy is simply a reflection of this God who made it. And what's more, God is all-powerful. He governs the oceans and the waves and kingdoms and epochs of history and mountain ranges and galaxy clusters and black holes. There is nothing that can rival God's power. Beloved, this is the true worth of God. And yet, as you look at your own soul, do you find yourself valuing God rightly all the time? Do you love God with all of your heart and soul and life and strength? Or are there other things that seem very appealing to you and very interesting? And maybe God can be put on the shelf for just a little while while I go and check out this other thing. Surely there's no harm in that. That's the way our souls think. Ungrateful, twisted by sin, disgusting that the one greatest being in all the universe would not be the greatest being in our hearts. And so do you see, beloved, how heinous our sin is? Do you see, consequently, how desperate a situation we are in that the one being who could possibly save us, who could possibly do us good, who could possibly satisfy us, is the one being whom we have opposed, whom we have hated, whom we have set aside in favor of other things? If we were doing this to some king on earth who had authority over us, we would surely tremble in fear knowing what this earthly king is able to do to us, how much more should we tremble in fear before this God of all the earth who has the power to sustain us in life forever and simultaneously judge us forever? Rightly did Jesus say that we should not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. This is our condition when we are in opposition to this good and loving and holy God. And so consider that just as glorious as it would be to have God always and only on your side, so terrifying it should be to us to have God opposed to us. How could we possibly have any hope in this life or in the next if this God, the God of all creation, is opposed to us? And again, this is the very question that the people of Israel were asking as they were exiled in Babylon. They realized that they had offended this holy God. They realized that they were prisoners 
in this foreign land. And they surely wanted God on their side to save them instead of opposing them in this judgment that they were experiencing. But they recognized that there was no way that God was going to save them after all of the sins that they had committed. They were without hope. And so if you are a sinner here this morning, and again, that is all of us, that is me, that is everyone Do you understand how right it is for God to be opposed to you? Do you understand how right it is for God to seek to destroy that which destroys his good creation, that which dishonors him as God and harms his image bearers? God does not owe you anything. All that God owes you is punishment and wrath. And make no mistake, because of God's holy nature, he will not hesitate to justly punish you. His warm thoughts about you, the fact that he created you in his image, will not overwhelm his justice and his righteousness. Everyone who is a practitioner of sin, and unrepentantly so, is in mortal danger this very moment, even if they do not realize it. They are in exile in Babylon in this desperate condition. And if God does not come to their aid, they will have no rescue. And so what can be done? How can we possibly have hope if this is our true condition? Well, here, beloved, is where Isaiah 52, 13 to chapter 53 enters the picture. One of the most beautiful most glorious explanations of the atonement in all the Bible. Beloved, if if we could not save ourselves, and if the God of the universe was against us, then there really is only one solution that remained. God himself would have to somehow solve our problem on our behalf. There's nothing that we could do. Only God had the power to act and to move in this situation and to change things. God is the judge and the executioner. We have no one else to appeal to. But again, what could God himself possibly do when he is the one who, he, who we have offended in the first place? The mind-blowing answer that we get in this text is that God would send his servant. That's what we see in 52.13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So God is going to send his servant. And what is God's servant going to do? God's servant is going to take away our sin. He is going to bear our sins upon himself so that our sins are no longer counted against us. We learn early on that this servant will be one who suffers. You see this in 52 verse 14. It says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then we see it again in verse 3. It says that he, the servant, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So this servant would be crushed. He would be bruised. But it wouldn't be as a punishment 
for his own sins. Look at verses 4 to 6. Isaiah says that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought that he was being punished for his own sin. But then verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on the servant, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. The amazing answer, beloved, to the question of how could God possibly save us? How could we possibly have hope? The amazing answer is that God would send his servant to take our sins upon himself so that God would no longer be against us, but God would be for us. Now, on its own, this answer, I think this plan of God should make very little sense to us. After all, it it wouldn't work with my children if I looked at my daughter Lilius and I said, you know what, Lilius, because you deserve a spanking, I'm going to give one to your brother and that's going to take care of this punishment. Of course, she might be thankful that I wasn't going to give her a spanking but give someone else a spanking, but that would hardly be fair, right? It would hardly be right of me as a parent to punish someone else for the sins of my daughter. And so to to make sense of this plan, to make sense of this problem, I want to look in two different directions. First, we need to look back to the sacrificial system because the only way that the Jews reading this passage could have understood what is meant by the servant bearing our iniquities is by looking at the sacrificial system because there it was common practice for one being to die for another being. But then second, I want to look more closely at this passage in Isaiah itself to see how this passage itself reveals to us the justice and the wisdom of God. So first, let's look briefly at the sacrificial system. Now to understand the sacrificial system, where we really need to turn is the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was given largely to describing the sacrificial system. But the pinnacle of the sacrificial system was the Day of Atonement, which is described in Leviticus chapter 16, right in the middle of the book of Leviticus. So I'm going to look at just a few passages from Leviticus chapter 16 to understand how this sacrificial system worked. Now the Day of Atonement was an annual day on the calendar of the Jewish people where God said that I set aside this day to deal with your sins recognizing that if the sins of the people of Israel were not dealt with, then God would be against them. God would be opposed to them. And so he gave them this special day, the Day of Atonement, to deal with their sins. Now, the Day of Atonement had three basic steps. First, a bull would be killed to atone for the priest who was making atonement. Next, the the tabernacle and the altar would be atoned for to take away the sin of the place. And then finally, the sin of the people 
would be dealt with by a goat. So let me just read a few of these passages. So Leviticus 16, verse 11, this is step one. It says, Aaron, that is the priest, shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. So notice the language here. First, there is the language of death. The bull will be killed. But why will the bull be killed? Not because this bull has done anything wrong. It says that the bull shall make atonement for himself and his house, himself and his family. So the bull, the blood of the bull, is as if it is the punishment for Aaron the priest. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And so what God is doing in the death of this bull is he is generously ascribing or accounting innocence to Aaron the priest on the basis of this bull having died. He is saying, Aaron, it is as if you yourself have died because this bull now has died. And because you have died, I am counting your sins as punished in this bull. But again, that was just step one of the day of atonement. Step two was after the priest was pure, he had to make the place of God pure. And so Leviticus 16 verse 15, it says, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Now, we skipped a few verses, but basically what Aaron does here is in killing the goat, he goes into the tabernacle and he puts this blood of the goat, he rubs it on the altar and he rubs it on the entryway to the tabernacle. And in this way, the tabernacle itself, the place is being purified, that the sin is being removed from it again by means of blood, by means of death of this goat. And then we come to step three, where atonement is made for the people. Leviticus 16, verse 21. It says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And so in this final step of the day of atonement, this goat that goes out into the wilderness, the picture is very clear of how the sins of the people are put upon this goat. The priest was actually to lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And all of those sins were put on this goat and then this goat is sent out into the wilderness, a picture of the sins of the people being removed from them. And at the time where this instruction was being given, the people of Israel were wandering in the desert. And so you could be sure that the goat going off into the desert would very quickly die of thirst and malnutrition because of the sins of the people 
they were placed upon him, carrying him out into the wilderness. And so, beloved, when we come to Isaiah 53 and we read that he, the servant of the Lord, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that he was pierced for our transgressions and that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, understand that this is precisely what has been done. If you yourself confess your sins and place your hands, as it were, upon the head of Jesus Christ, saying, I am wrong and I am opposed to you, God, but I trust in this Jesus as the sacrifice for my sins then your sins will surely be removed from you as far as the east is from the west, and God will only be for you. Atonement has been made. Praise the Lord. But this, beloved, only tells us how atonement has been made. This only tells us how Jesus Christ could bear our sins. It still doesn't answer that question necessarily of the justice of it. How is it right for God to take my sins and put them upon the person of Jesus Christ? And so I want to go back to Isaiah 53 now and see three points that Isaiah makes that shows us the justice of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The first point that Isaiah makes is that Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, was a willing substitute. He was a willing substitute. The first and clearest thing that would make any such substitution wrong would be if the substitute were not a willing substitute. Take the example of my kids again. If I decided not to punish one of my kids, but instead punish the other, and the one that I punished instead said, no, please don't, I don't want this punishment, it would be wrong of me to impose this punishment upon this other child. But what if the child willingly stepped forward and said, no, dad, please don't punish your daughter, please punish me instead. If this were a willing substitution, well, then much of the problem of the justice of this is taken away. And so you can look at Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In other words, in all the punishment that was laid upon Jesus, in all of his Calvary ordeal, the weeping, the crown of thorns, the mockery, the crucifixion itself, through all of that, Jesus Christ did not protest. He did not say, I do not want to be here. He did not say, please do not do this to me. In fact, we even read that before his ordeal in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but thine be done. He was there to do the will of the Lord, and he was there to do it willingly, not begrudgingly. In Hebrews, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Jesus was not an unwilling substitute. He did not protest going to the cross. No, he kept his mouth shut in the midst of all his ordeal, and he willingly endured all the abuse that was hurled his way. So 
that's the first way that we see the justice of what God has done. The second problem, potential problem with this plan, is if the substitute had also committed the crimes that the actual perpetrator was guilty of, then clearly it could not work to use the substitute as a substitute. Because then he would simply be being punished for his own crimes. And so in order for any substitution to work, the substitute must be innocent. The substitute must be pure. And again, Isaiah tells us that this is exactly the case. If you look at verse 9 of Isaiah 53, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, there is nothing that Jesus had done to deserve the punishment that he received. And therefore, all of the punishment that fell upon Jesus was the punishment that you and I deserved. Jesus did not need to suffer for his own sins. He had no reason to suffer whatsoever. He should have remained in God's eternal bliss forever and ever. And yet he willingly chose to come and to suffer, even though he was innocent, precisely so that he could bear your sins and my sins, so our iniquity could be placed upon him. The third and final thing that resolves the justice of what God has done is that the victims of the sins should have some say, should they not? Surely those who have been harmed by our sins have the greatest interest in seeing our sins rightly punished. It would be unfair to the family of a murder victim if we just decided that, well, we're not going to punish the actual murderer, but we're going to punish somebody else. That family would still say, well, what about our rights? What about the rights of our family member who has been killed? We want the actual wrongdoer punished. What can we say to this? Well, first, we must clearly understand what I spoke of at the outset. We must understand what sin is. We must understand that God himself is the ultimate and truest victim of all of our sins. All of our sins are first and foremost against God himself and not against other people. Remember how sin is essentially not valuing God rightly, not esteeming him rightly? And any sin we commit against any other person or against ourselves is first and foremost the result of not honoring God as God, not valuing him rightly. And so in this case, God does have primary standing as the one who is harmed because of our sins. And therefore, if God wants to say that he himself will bear our sins, it is his right to say that he will bear our sins. And so on this count, it is actually the victim himself, God, who has chosen to punish a substitute. Amazingly, beloved, God does not want vengeance on us, even though we have sinned against him. And again, we see this very clearly in Isaiah 53, what is really one of the most stunning verses in all the Bible, Isaiah 53, verse 10. 
It says, it was the will of the Lord, the will of Yahweh to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. Beloved, when we answer the question of who is it ultimately that killed Jesus Christ, it is not the Roman soldiers that nailed his hands to the piece of wood. It is not the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who gave him up to the Roman authorities. It is not Pilate who declared the final sentence on him. No, it is God himself who crushed Jesus Christ. It is the Lord, the Father of Jesus Christ, who hung his Son upon the cross. The very one who is aggrieved, who hates our sin, is the very one who chose to give his only Son in a horrendous death in order that we, are his enemies, might go free. And so when we see that it is the victim himself, who has chosen to also be the sacrifice, we can be all the more amazed and in wonder at the justice of God. And second, we should also understand that this is why it is so critical for anyone who receives the mercy of God in Jesus Christ to also make reparations with anyone that they have harmed. If those who are forgiven do not do that, then they make a mockery of God's justice and make a mockery of God's mercy and they show that they have not truly received the mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. And so in all these ways, the justice of God is vindicated by the death of Jesus Christ upon a cross. There can be no objection that God is unjust or that he has done wrong in offering this substitute for our sins. And this brings us to the final question, beloved. The question simply of what shall we do with this? What do we do with this if we know that Jesus came and suffered and died to bear our sins upon himself, the question nevertheless remains, how does this atonement, how does this sacrifice get applied to me? How is it that I get to be found under the blood of Jesus Christ? And the answer here is almost as breathtaking as the work of atonement itself. Although it is truly the only possible answer for us who are so lost and wayward and cannot cease from sinning. And that answer of how we get to be found under the blood of Jesus Christ is that we simply have to trust that Jesus really did die for me individually. You have to acknowledge not simply that the event happened, you can't simply say, yes, I know that Jesus died on a cross. Isn't that wonderful? That is not sufficient to receive the sacrifice of Christ for you. It is not even sufficient to say that, yes, I know that, that Jesus died and I know that he took upon himself the sins of many. I know that Jesus did that. Even saying that is not sufficient to have the blood of Jesus Christ cover you. No, you must look to the cross of Christ. You must look to Jesus crucified and you must be able to say, Heavenly Father, I believe 
that he was given for me. That that blood that he shed applies to my sin, that I am under his atonement, that my iniquity has been put there on the cross. You must reckon your own sins as being carried by Jesus upon that cross. Until you get to that personal confession, that personal ownership of what Jesus has done, saying that my own sins have been crucified, and that in Jesus' resurrection, my own new life has been won. Until you get to that moment of personal faith, you have not yet received the blood of Christ upon your life for the forgiveness of your sins. And beloved, if you do this, if you trust that your sins truly were taken by Jesus upon that cross, then a remarkable transformation will begin to happen in your life. Those sins that you count as crucified upon the cross of Christ will suddenly begin to lose their power over you. You will suddenly have new delight, new joy in this God whom you now believe truly has taken away all of his wrath, all of his punishment against you. And you will long to fellowship with God day by day and you will long to fellowship with God's people because you see the beauty of what he has done for you. What I am saying, beloved, is that there is nothing that you could possibly do to earn God's favor. There is nothing that you could possibly do to earn the atonement of Christ for you. All that you can do is look and believe. Believe that this truly has been done for you individually. And so you see the wonder of Christ's atonement is that in a real sense, you have not simply escaped punishment. It's that in a real sense, you have already been punished. And there can be no double jeopardy. There can be no further punishment for you who are in Christ Jesus. The one who is free is set free indeed, beloved. And so, beloved, in closing, I plead with you to place your faith in this great salvation. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. See how great your salvation is. See how incredibly desperate your situation was before Christ came to this earth, before he died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. See that you had no hope whatsoever in this life or the next that God was against you. But then see Beloved, how through Christ, this one who bears our sin, this one who bears all of our iniquities, through him, you have God on your side forever. Your sins are washed clean. There is no more judgment to fear. There is no more wrath of God whatsoever. The only thing that we have to look forward to from here on out is joy and life forevermore. Praise the Lord. And so, beloved, we can be prepared to suffer the loss of all things here and now and know that the joy that awaits us is so much greater than anything that could be lost in this short life because Jesus has won such a great salvation. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, in the 
light of this glorious salvation, we truly only can say hallelujah. (laughs) We thank you, Lord, that we who could not save ourselves were nevertheless saved by your loving kindness, by your extravagant mercy to send your son as a sin bearer. And so we say, praise you, Lord. And I pray that you would open our eyes all the more to the glory of this salvation that has been won for us, that we would not fear, that we would not dread any more punishment, but that we would delight in you, our God, and in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you now hear our prayers of confession and our words of intercession for this world around us?